Luke 19, verses 11 through 28. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said also to him, And you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvelous ministry that your word has in all of our lives. And I pray this morning that it would have the impact that only your word and your gospel can in changing hardened hearts, softening them, granting repentance and faith, genuine trust in your son Jesus. And for those of us who have already experienced the miracle of new birth, that you would grow us in relationship with him and grow us in likeness to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off with a question this morning. Have you ever waited or worked very hard for something, and once you got it, you were quite disappointed? Ever had an experience like that? Where you waited a whole long time for something, and then when you finally got to the moment in which you received it, or you came to the time when it was going to occur, you were supremely disappointed. Perhaps you've succumbed to this by the hype around a upcoming movie release or a book publication that in the end it doesn't stack up. Maybe you purchased a piece of new technological equipment and found it to be quite shabby. Maybe you've ate at a highly anticipated restaurant and found the cuisine to be subpar. Maybe you've waited in line at the DPS only to find out when you get up to get your license that you don't have the right identification with you, and so you're back to the end of the line again. Maybe you've waited in an amusement park for several hours for a ride only to discover when you got up there that the ride was not worth the wait at all. Maybe you've had a long-awaited vacation, and once getting there, it was just not worth it. I have a very silly example from my third anniversary with my wife. I was actually mentioning this earlier. We were talking just last night, and we started laughing all over again as we thought about this. We traveled to San Antonio for a couple of days, and we were strolling along the river walk. And at one of these little stores, there was this thing called the Wacky Worm. Oh, if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's this little display there. There's a TV set up, and there's this little piece of fabric, a fuzzy worm, and the thing looks alive. This guy is just going through all the stuff. It's weaving in and through his fingers. It's dropping into cups and jumping back out and doing all this stuff. And 
I'm like, wow, that's so incredible. And I'm just like kind of, I'm just kind of have one of these, you know, gapers blocks or whatever. And I'm just sitting there looking at this TV as I'm watching this guy do this. And so I find out it's a few bucks to buy one. I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get one of these. And so Leah's like, all right, sure, whatever you want to do, Jess. And so I go ahead and buy this and I can't wait to get home to unlock the magic behind the wacky worm. You know, what is it going to be? And so I'm, anticipating this and so we get back to the hotel and I remember opening up the package and I'm like okay where's the how does this work and I see the little piece of fabric worm and there's a little instruction booklet and then there's this long very thin fishing line and at that moment I said "Uh uh-oh as I started to try to fumble about with this fishing line I realized really quick how much of a bumbling idiot I am when it comes to trying to make something look alive. It looks completely ridiculous. And I'm sitting there trying to make it work. I'm like, look, Leah, look. And she's like, uh. And we just started busting up laughing hysterically because I realized that this is a complete um, bust. I thought that maybe this would be something cool, but it wasn't at all. Now, we can laugh about that one, but depending upon the amount of time or money you've spent on something, you might not be laughing at the end, huh? If it involved a whole lot of money or a whole lot of time or a whole lot of energy and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and here it is, you might not be laughing at the end of it. You might be crying. Here in Luke 19, verses 11 through 28, Jesus makes sure to explain that coming events that are coming up in his ministry and in the experience of his disciples are going to lead to a time of waiting. He didn't want his disciples to be unprepared. And what he ends up speaking here would also serve as a warning to those who were rejecting him. In God's providence, there would be a time of waiting between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Christ. A waiting that we ourselves are in the midst of to this very day. There's no more important wait than the waiting upon the return of our glorious Lord and Savior, King Jesus. And how you wait provides an indication of what it is in the end that you're waiting for and what it is to expect at the end of that wait. In a sermon entitled, Awaiting the King's Return, I'd like to provide three instructions. Three instructions which, if we follow, will transform our time of waiting upon Jesus' return. Three instructions. I'll mention them quickly. First of all, that we need to come to grips with the weight. Come to grips with the weight. Secondly, to make the most of the weight. And third, to look to the end of the weight. To look to the end of the weight. First of all, let's talk about coming to grips with the weight. We have to come to grips with the reality that we're in a situation of waiting. And this weight was contrary to the expectations surrounding Jesus' ministry. Now, there's been no small amount of damaging theology that's been put out there today that's based on what we would call an over-realized eschatology. Now, that's really big theological speak for saying that we're trying to take too much of the yet-to-come and place it in the already. There are elements of God's kingdom that are still yet-to-come. There's promises that are still yet-to-be-fulfilled. But there have been a whole lot of theological movements that have erred by trying to take stuff that's still yet to come and plant it in the present. One of the fastest growing and biggest movements of this is what we call the health and wealth gospel. Trying to take the blessings that are going to associate with the new, the new heavens and new earth, right? No sickness, no disease, no tears, all those things. That is coming. Praise the Lord that's coming. But it's not now. And as a result, teachers who have taught these sorts of things, that these are all happening right now, have led to all kinds of confusion within the church today and also left a lot of people disappointed, frustrated, angry, and quite mad when they encounter diseases and sicknesses that don't go away. It's called them to question their faith and all sorts of other things. There's real problems when we fail to recognize... And come to grips with the fact that we're in for a wait. How many people today have uh, at least encountered someone who believed that Jesus was going to return on a certain date? And we've now passed those dates. And what happens with these movements is that occurs. It leads to a whole lot of frustration and question and confusion. All when Jesus himself said that this is something in the Father's hands and you will not know the date or the hour. 
Well, Jesus is already dealing with that issue in his own ministry. Understand that what we're dealing with today, impatience is not something that just arose with Americans. We happen to be quite impatient people. But it didn't arise with us. It's been common to man. And during Jesus' own ministry, he was dealing with the same phenomenon. Jesus' audience had already heard him declare, we're told this happening right on the heel of him talking with Zacchaeus, right? And he just said that today salvation has come to this house. Speaking about Zacchaeus' household. Now, while salvation is being offered that very day, and it had come that very day to Zacchaeus' house, Jesus goes on to explain that the end for which we're all hoping is still something that lies in the future. He's correcting the assumption that just because salvation has come to this house that day, that everything's going to be wrapped up immediately, right then. The assumption was becoming all the more powerful among Jesus' companions because of a a few different factors. Number one, news is traveling further and further regarding Jesus. More and more people are becoming familiar with what he's doing. He's traveling right now to Jerusalem. And he's traveling at a very special time of the year, Passover. So he's traveling through Jericho. This is almost last stop on the way to Jerusalem. And there's crowds gathering around him. There's more and more hype that's building. Blind beggars had just cried out to him from the roadside, Mercy us, Son of David. They're using messianic titles. They're being announced. These men were given their eyes back. They're given sight. He just healed a, a couple of blind beggars of their blindness. And now he's just visited Zacchaeus and completely transformed the heart of a man who was so arrogant and covetous and made him into a generous giver. Jesus is about to meet with crowds as he enters into Jerusalem and hear them shouting Hosanna as he enters in what we remember as the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. All of these events are raising eschatological expectations. People are wondering, is this the end? Is this it? Is this how it's coming? Anticipation is in the air. But Jesus wants to make sure that everyone is aware that God's kingdom, the totality, the consummation, the end of all of this was not immediately on the horizon. There would be a time of waiting. So Jesus tells a parable involving a nobleman, literally translated well-born one, one who has been born well. In other words, he's of a privileged class. He's the family that he was born into. He had power and authority and privilege, at least partially by birthright. And this nobleman travels to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. And while he's gone, he leaves behind him some servants and he entrusts those servants with resources. The idea that he would have to travel some distance away in order to be granted authority in the very place he came from sounds kind of odd to us, doesn't it? I mean, today we would just get on, you know, our cell phone or send an email, right? I mean, why do we have to go anywhere? Well, obviously they didn't have that kind of technology, obviously. But but why is he even doing that? Well, remember, this would have been very common in the Roman Empire days. If you wanted any amount of authority and to be entrusted with that, it all came from Rome. And so, upon the death of of a father, the son who is next in line would have to travel off to Rome and meet with Caesar to hopefully gain the authority over the kingdom that he was living in. Now, what makes this story not only uh, applicable to the Roman Empire and what people would normally be familiar with, but even more um, emotionally stirring and, and politically charged is the recent history in Israel regarding a situation just like this. Just about every commentator that you read on this passage will point this out. And so I'm going to read from one of them. This is from uh, Edersheim, who's a, a Jewish historian, a Christian, and he writes some wonderful things. Listen to what he says. It has been commonly supposed that the parable that Jesus tells contains an allusion to what had happened after the death of Herod the Great when his son, Archelaus, hastened to Rome to obtain confirmation of his father's will. While a Jewish deputation followed to oppose his appointment. 
So what happened was, Herod the Great dies, his son, Archelaus, goes off to Rome to seek kingship over that same region. Well, shortly before this, about 3,000 Jews had been killed while at a Passover celebration. And so as a result, the Jews put together a delegation of 50 men, and they send them off to Caesar as well. Archelaus gets there to Caesar, makes his petition, says, I'm the next in line, I should have the throne. Meanwhile, he's met with not only the 50 Jews who are protesting and say, don't, no, don't make him king over us, but he's met with his own family members who are also arguing over who should be next in line. After an extensive period of time and debate and discussion, finally what Caesar decides is he's going to split up these regions and he makes him not king, but ethnarch, along with a couple of his siblings. Well, when he comes back, how do you think he feels about the Jewish delegation? Not all that happy. And so he's going to, while he didn't become king, he still had power in that region. And as a result, this causes some problems for the Jews going forward. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the very man's name who's mentioned in Matthew's account of the infancy narrative. Remember, Joseph finds out that Archelaus has now become the ruler in the region. And so as a result, he's afraid to go there. This is the same guy. Another FYI is that the same guy, Archelaus, had made a palace in Jericho. Now, put all those details together. Here's Jesus in Jericho. He wants to make sure that people are aware of the fact that what's about to happen is a time of waiting. And so he tells a parable, a story that these people would have been quite familiar with. He's maybe even telling this in the shadow of, or in the, with, with that palace in the background. We don't know. By the way, Archelaus, by this time had been kicked out of his seat of power, but they would have remembered this in their memories. I mean, what Jesus does here would be akin to giving an indication regarding, let's say that I was to make an illustration about what the wicked were like, and I might say, the wicked are like white-collar business elites who doctor financial statements to fool people into believing their company is doing better than it actually is, ultimately leading to the discovery of those unfair practices and the collapse of the company and the wholesale loss of jobs and retirement accounts tied to the company's stock value. What am I talking about? Come on, Houstonians. Enron. Yeah, I'm talking about Enron. Exactly. You know from our connection with those events in somewhat recent history. Now, true, it would be true no matter what. That's a wicked kind of individual that would do all of that. But meanwhile, we're familiar with it because of our proximity to it. Or it would be like me saying, it's a little bit easier one, the wicked are like those who take planes and crash them into skyscrapers, killing hundreds of civilians. We all think instantly 9-11. Or how about this one from further back in history? The wicked are like those who rise to power from rhetoric of hate and supremacy, working towards the massacre of an entire race of people in death camps. Who am I thinking of? Hitler, yeah, very good. So we see how we can do that. I can tell a story, and now I'm saying something, but I'm also playing upon recent, or maybe not even all the time, super recent history. In this case, we have something that was within 30 years in which Jesus is telling this happened in their lives. So regardless of whether or not you were familiar with the referent, the analogy is true and helpful, but its emotive force becomes all the more strong if you're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. We've seen this happen. Now, when Jesus told this parable, it would bring to mind recent historical events and provide even more understanding connection for his hearers. They would get this. It would make sense to them. They've seen this sort of thing transpire. Jesus is telling a parable to give insight into the events that were on the horizon. He illustrates here the time that we're living in even right now. From Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to his return, there's a time of waiting. He has gone off to a distant country to be granted the name above every name and return again one day, day to reign visibly in the new heavens and the new earth. There is certainly a sense in which Christ reigns now, but there's also a sense in which the fullness of his reign is still yet to come. How are some ways in which Jesus is reigning presently? Well, we know that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We know that he's making intercession for us. We know that he's governing the church by his word. We know that he's guarding it and giving it protection. We know that he's enriching the church by gifts of the Spirit. We know that he's nourishing the church by his grace. 
Calvin mentions all of these as well as saying, they restrains the fury of Satan and of all the ungodly and defeats all of their schemes. So Christ is presently reigning in a sense, but there's a sense in which his reign, the fullness of it, is still yet to come. And we're still awaiting the return of our king and the visible manifestation of his kingship and his glory. We're waiting for that. Now, this time of waiting, we have to come to grips with its reality. We also, I think it's also helpful for us to understand how this plays into the story of redemption. The parable that Jesus tells is not meant to diminish the possibility of entrance into God's kingdom now. That's happening. Zacchaeus is a good example of that. The two blind beggars are a good example of that. Nor is his parables meant to exclude the real possibility and real reality that he's coming again. It's only teaching that there's going to be some time in between the inauguration of his kingdom and the consummation of his kingdom. You see, instead of going up to Jerusalem right now to receive the crown, Jesus was going to accept the cross. Jesus' rule and glory had not yet come in its fullness, for his path must travel through shame and the suffering associated with the cross. Why is this? Because Jesus didn't come according to popular expectation to just set up an earthly government. He came to do battle with a much worse enemy of ours, a spiritual enemy, the enemy that we all are enslaved to. And yes, the principal power of the air, but sin and death. Jesus came to break us free from the bonds of sin and death. And since our sin required a death, Jesus came to lay down his life in our stead so that sin and death could no longer hold us captive. And between the already and not yet of Jesus' kingdom would be an opportunity now for the church to bear witness to the greatness of the gospel to people all throughout the world, sharing with the gospel with men and women far and wide. Our immediate question certainly is, how long? Right? Just like a child in the backseat of a car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We're all like that backseat child. We all feel that way sometimes. When, Lord? When is this going to happen? How much more pain? How much more sickness? How much more death? When will you bring this to consummation? How long will we have to wait? But rather than answering with uh, how long, Jesus focuses our attention on faithful, patient, endurance, and service. He says, instead of concentrating on how long will it be, you ought to concentrate on what you can do while we're waiting. What do we do with the waiting? You see, rather than coming to a swift resolution, Jesus is letting His followers know that the plot is going to thicken and there's going to be more struggle before we get to the ultimate conclusion. What's its purpose? Well, this time of waiting provides an opportunity for the extension of God's grace and mercy. Jesus provides us with a paradigm to understand the wait between promise and fulfillment. What should we be doing in the waiting? How do we understand this? You see, the delay, this portion of time that God has allotted, allows for rebels to become servants. The time that God has allotted allows for rebels to become servants. The delay between Jesus' departure and His final coming again reveals our true allegiance. You see, it's not until the king goes away that then we get an idea of where are the subjects really on him. <laughs> and we see right off the bat that they assemble a delegation and they send some people off to protest his kingship. Can you see that? Sometimes it's not until the king has gone away that we get to see everyone's true colors. Notice that the king's departure provides an opportunity for rebellion. And we see that rebellion happening in the text, in the story that Jesus tells. And man, that rebellion is so present today. There are many that believe, well, the king is gone, he'll never come back. So let's rebel and do whatever we want. They would want nothing more than for that king to never come back. The delay shows everyone's true allegiance, but it provides an opportunity for repentance. There's opportunity for rebels to be made servants. 
2 Peter 3.9, listen. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. All we have to do is remember back in our lives that there was a moment, there was a period of time, when we were not saved. And aren't you super glad that He tarried, that He waited until in His providence He brought you into His family? God is not slack according to His promise. He's not just twiddling His thumbs. His timing is perfect. He's patient towards the lost. He's providing opportunity for rebels to come to repentance and faith in His Son. And to move from hating the King to loving the King. You see, this is part of the reason for this delay. There's an opportunity for the extension of mercy and grace. You say, okay, that answers it as it relates to the lost. I can see why they would be benefited by God delaying the consummation of history. But what about for us who have now been saved? I mean, why leave us here? (laughs) Why not just take us right to heaven? Why not just be done with all of this? Well, I think there's another purpose that God is using the delay the waiting for in the life of those whom He has saved. It's so important that Jesus' disciples learn what it is to not grow weary in doing good. That we remember that God is not slack concerning His promise. And while it might feel at times that our struggles and our trials are excruciatingly long, if you just adopt an eternal perspective, how long is a few years in light of eternity? How long is this little stay we have right now here on earth in comparison with all of eternity? You see, the master in this story leaves behind resources for the wait. He gives a mina, we're told, to each bondservant. The same amount is given to each of these ten slaves. Now, many people, when they read this tale, it reminds them of the one in Matthew, the parable of the talents. There are some differences to be noted. I believe that they're two separate occasions. However, they have a lot of similarities. Matthew pictures different amounts being given to three different slaves. Here we have the same amount given to ten slaves. Ultimately, it's not so much how much you're given that matters most, but what you do with what you have been given that matters. How much is a mina? Sometimes referred to as the parable of the pounds. But what, what is a mina? Mina is equivalent to just over three months of labor. So I like to put it in those terms. A lot of people put them in those terms because that way it's kind of timeless. <laughs> so wherever you are now, whatever about three months of working is, that's about what we're talking about was being entrusted to each of these servants. Now, in comparison, when in the parable of the talents, when a talent is given, a talent is equal to 60 minas. So it takes 60 times three and a half months of work. And you get to about 17 years. So giving, giving, being given one talent is like about 17 years of work. So having been given five or ten talents means 100 to 200 years of labor has been just handed to you. So comparatively speaking, Luke's account here with the mina is much smaller. Right? We're talking three months of labor. This is not a huge amount to be entrusted with. But that's part of the whole idea. You see, this master is testing his servants to see if they'll be faithful in a little thing. Hudson Taylor said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. A little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. The slaves aren't given super detailed instructions regarding the mina. They're just told that they're supposed to employ them to the master's benefit. He says, trade with them, use them, make a profit with them. There's freedom given here to the servants. They're not told exactly what to invest in, what to do with it. Just that they're supposed to make a profit with it. You see, if they love their master, they'll do anything to please him. They don't need rigid rules to get there. They're simply told to trade with the mina. Therefore, obviously, not to hoard it, not to waste it. And meanwhile, a final accounting will come. You see, the present is a time for testing and a time of preparation for the rest of eternity. 
We'll see that the reward that is distributed to faithful servants here in a moment is greater service and authority in the coming kingdom. So faithfulness now translates to greater service in the hereafter. There's such wisdom in this. I mean, think about this for a minute. Who is the best sort of boss? Is it a boss who's never experienced what it is like to be an employee? Or is it one who's once been there themselves? Who's experienced what that's like? There's such wisdom here. The best master is one who's first become a servant. If you don't know what it means to serve, your leadership will most certainly be tyrannical. But if you know what it is to be in the trenches, if you know what it is to serve, then you'll have the wisdom and generosity and tenderness that ought to be associated with good lordship or showing mastery. Luke 22. We had this read this morning. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? And who reclines at the table or the one who serves? I'm sorry, is it the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Here Jesus is saying to his disciples, we would all instantly connect that the one who is the most authority is the one who's sitting at the table being served. And meanwhile, who has the greatest authority? Who has the most prominence there in that room? Jesus. And what is he doing? He's serving. You see, the Lord is using the present in the lives of his children to teach us what it means to be a servant. Because it's only servants who are then prepared for future glory and authority in God's kingdom. If you wish to be greater, then be the servant. Isn't it glorious that Jesus has not only given us his own example in this that points points to this, but he's also given us the resources and the context to learn what it means to serve. He took the role of a servant so that our hardened hearts might be softened and our sins might be forgiven. And then he demonstrated what it means to be a servant and they invested us with the Holy Spirit who's working within us to make us the servants that he wants us to be. God is making use of the weight in our lives to teach us these very things. So come to grips with the weight. Second of all, then, make the most of the weight. Make the most of the weight. We first need to comment on the tragedy of wasted waiting. The tragedy of wasted waiting. Have you ever been there before? You're in a line and you just wish you had a book. You're in stuck in traffic and you just wish your radio worked. You know, We've all had moments like that. What is the tragedy of wasted waiting? What does it look like? Well, we know that there is these resources distributed to all of the master's servants. And they're told to make a return on the master's investment. He had commanded them, just turn a profit. Trade with it. Use it. Make a profit. And he comes expecting to find one. He says on his return, he comes looking for that profit. Now, I want to consider what the last slave does first. For he demonstrates to us the tragedy of wasted waiting. When called to give an account, the slave produces the original mina that he had been given, and he offers an excuse. He pulls it out of a piece of cloth and offers it back to the master. He had deliberately disobeyed the master's instructions, which were to use or trade or make a profit with the mina that he had been given. So, note that off the bat, he had been given one simple instruction with it, trade with it, use it, invest it. But he had foolishly taken the money out of circulation. And then he gives it back as if to say, be thankful I didn't lose it. Here it is. And is rightly called an unprofitable slave. For he makes no profit with what he had been given. And then he makes a claim amounting to something like, you expect an inconsistently high return out of me. You're trying to get too much from me. You're impossible to please. You take profit from the work of others. And no matter what happens here, I'm in a lose-lose situation. Either A, I invest this, I make money, you're just going to take it. Or B, I'm going to invest it, I'm going to lose something, and I have to owe you something. Either way, I'm out. You're an exacting man. You're a hard taskmaster. This is the 
sort of excuse he gives. He paints an extremely negative picture of his master. And the description he gives, friends, is so un, not in line with the description we're given in the account. How did the whole thing start off with the master giving minas to be used? Didn't have to do that in the first place. And how does it end? We hear that those servants who were give a return are given super rewards. This man is not an exacting taskmaster. But meanwhile, this is how he's being slandered by this wicked slave. The master could have argued with that description and said, you're completely wrong. But he doesn't take that tact. He doesn't say, you don't have me, you don't understand me at all. Instead, he says, well, you think you know me so well. Well, why don't you employ what you know about me in your present behavior? In other words, if I'm such an exacting man, then why didn't you learn from that? Maybe you didn't think you're getting any reward, but what about punishment? I mean, what if I come back? If that's how I am, aren't you concerned about the punishment you might receive? Wouldn't you fear not returning something to me on my investment? Is it no fear of retribution? And if he knew that his master was somebody who went around making profit off of other people's work, this is the idea, right? You reap where you did not sow. <laughs> so you're taking crops from places that you didn't do the planting. That's the argument he's making here. Then he just says to him, well, then why didn't you employ your knowledge of my practices to your own situation? You could have at least taken the money, brought it over to the money changers table. It's literally it's the bench and translated by many Bibles here, the bank. Brought it to the bank and let them do it for you. <laughs> Profit off of them. Let them sow it. And then reap from where you haven't sown. That's his point. If, you've, if you know that to be me, then why didn't you at least give it to somebody who would do something with it? What's more is that the unprofitable servant didn't even like hide it in a super great way. I mean, he puts it in a cloth. You could maybe even see the guy was not only unfaithful, but foolish. This is a great lesson for all of us. Because it's not enough to merely not spend God's resources on ungodly things, sinful pursuits. Please hear this. God's standard is not just, well, please don't spend it on something horrid. The standard is, use this towards something that glorifies me and benefits your fellow man. While it's certainly not good to waste resources, it's also not good to waste them through inactivity. The minor wasn't given to be hidden away and to be hoarded. It was given to be invested and utilized. This is why I think we so often misunderstand the depth of our sin. A lot of times when a person says, well, I'm not all that bad, usually in that moment, what they're contemplating is purely only sins of commission. And they're not thinking about sins of omission. Things that they ought to be doing that they're not. You know, many people think in the terms, in part of the terms of Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus goes, hey, anyone I've defrauded as a result of the repentance worked in his heart, anyone I've defrauded, I'll pay back four times as much. And, here's the second part, I'll take half of my possessions and give them to the poor. He's concerned not only about making right the wrongs he committed, but helping those who are in need. Oftentimes we don't think about just how deep our sin goes and how much in need of grace and forgiveness we really are. It's kind of like the child who argues with his or her parent, but I didn't do anything. And you say, exactly. That's my issue. You haven't done anything. We all like to use those sorts of excuses. But ultimately, the way this works is the mind is now taken from him and given to someone who will make a good investment of it. You've heard the phrase before, use it or lose it. God expects his gifts to be put to good use. There's a lot of debate circling around this guy. Was this guy one of those 1 Corinthians 3 guys who, you know, had all of his works tested by fire and burned up, yet still granted entrance into the coming kingdom? That's one way it could be understood. Or is this guy the type of individual who he says one thing about himself, but meanwhile, since there's no fruit of that life, he's actually not what he says he is. 
a sham Christian, a hypocrite. I got to lean towards the latter, and the reason for that is while the two parables are different, I see some parallels here, and we find that in the parable of the talents with the one who got one talent who just buried it and then brought it back, this is what Jesus says regarding that guy, throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's final judgment kind of language there, if you didn't catch that. So his lack of fruit demonstrated who he really was. It's like the individuals who go around calling themselves evangelicals or calling themselves Christians because they have a Christian t-shirt on and they put an ichthus on the back of their car. I think that covers them. And meanwhile, their lives don't bear any spiritual fruit from the work of the gospel. That person is not genuinely saved. You see, those who squander resources given now will have even less because even the little that they have will be taken away and will be given to those who have acted responsibly. Do we live in light of that reality that there is one day in which we will all give an account? Now we know that for those who are Christians, the account is an account regarding our works done. Remember, we're not saved by works, but saved for good works, and those will be tested. And there's reward coming for those works done properly and for God's glory. Are we squandering resources that He's bestowed upon us to be used for His glory and the good of our fellow man? Those are good questions for us to continually examine and pray about. Well, let's secondly look at the reward of faithful waiting. There's a reward of faithful waiting. Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. So, we had that read this morning as well. So, Jesus is coming quickly. Reward is with him. And he's going to render to every man according to what he has done. J.C. Ryle, I think, does a really good job of just summarizing. Here's how it works. Our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportional to our works. And then, let me put a footnote to that. Much as the Westminster Confession does, we have to ultimately realize that even the works that we're rewarded for are only by God's grace. So still this is by God's grace. It's not like you have grace and then us working on our own to accomplish our own rewards. No, any work that's done that's rewarded is also supplied by and because of grace. It's due to the fact that a believer is in Christ that the Father receives His work as something worthy of reward. If we were not in Christ, it wouldn't be received that way and we wouldn't be rewarded. Two things to say about this reward. First of all, we're told here in the text that it's comparative. There's a relationship between present faithfulness and eternal reward. This really sinks, let us really sink in. There's a relationship between present faithfulness and eternal reward. The master here in the story comes back from a kingdom, comes back from the faraway country, now owning the kingdom. He's king. And he needs management. And so he distributes responsibilities in the new kingdom on the basis of the faithfulness of his servants in the small things. He looks and says, what do you do with those three months of salary? How do you invest them? And on the basis of the results, I'm now going to entrust you with work in my new kingdom. We often think of rewards in the form of earthly riches and preferred status. But this parable is really insightful, I believe, as it relates to the coming kingdom. Here it would seem indicated that the reward that's granted is in the form of ongoing service or increased opportunity for service. Leadership is granted to those who do well. Jeremiah says, the reward of a duty done is a duty to be done. So, as a result of what you've done, now you're going to be granted more to do. 
So this time of waiting is to be a time of working. Reward will be distributed on the basis of faithful waiting, seen in responsible stewardship of what God has given to us right now. And I love the humility of these guys. Okay, so let's talk to them. So he comes to the other two servants and he asks for a report. And both of these two guys, the one who brings back ten minas and the other one who brings back five minas, both of them say, your mina has made. Love that. Your mina has made. Not, I have accomplished. Your mina has made. They recognize that the only reason they were able to make an investment in the first place is because he had given to them. They were just making use of what he had already given them. They were responsible as stewards of their master's mina. And oh, I hope that that would be our thanksgiving and praise. That we would recognize that whatever we have is from God and therefore all the glory goes to God. This is kind of like Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted Apollos water, but God caused the growth. So God receives all the glory. He's the one making this happen. And since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, God receives all the glory and we've no room to boast. Because we have nothing that we didn't first receive. Everything we have, we received. And therefore, what we use is that which God has given. And so it all rebounds back to Him. But the reward that is received is commensurate with the faithfulness in the little things you're granted now. Some have said that perhaps it... In this case, you could say like the janitor at the church is worthy of more eternal reward than the pastor is. Because what is God looking for? Faithfulness in the little things. It's how well did you handle the gifts I've given you? How did you fulfill the calling I put on your life? Reminds me of Joseph's experience. How can we not think of him? Remember, it seemed like everywhere he went, whatever little thing was placed into Joseph's hands, it prospered. It did well. And so what did his master do? Give him more and more. Until eventually we find him in second command in Egypt. Those who diligently serve the Lord using the gospel and spiritual gifts to the glory of God and the benefit of their fellow man will be granted further opportunity to work in God's kingdom. I think this is so super exciting. And what better thought is there than working for God throughout all eternity? Being employed by Him. You see, work itself is not an evil thing. Work was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, remember? It's the increased pain and toil out in the fields that was part of the curse. But they're given work before that to tend and cultivate the garden. Work is good. Richard, Richard Phillips says, While the short years of this present life are the most trying we shall ever know, in this sense, they are also the most significant in all eternity. For on the anvil of our present lives, eternal destinies and rewards are being forged. So in one sense, this, this, world, uh, this reward is relative to present faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And then in another sense, we just have to also admit this. It's extremely disproportionate. It's extremely disproportionate. And what do I mean by that? So in one sense, I can say it's proportional to present faithfulness. But then another level, I say, well, it's disproportionate. Well, how? Because God's rewards that he gives far exceed what they should be. Far exceed what they should be. I mean, comparatively speaking, the tasks that we're doing presently are so small in comparison with the responsibilities to be distributed in the coming kingdom. It's akin to having been given three months' salary and doing a decent job with that, and then a guy coming back and saying, all right, here's ten cities to govern. Try that on. Okay, so I handled a couple thousand dollars, and now you say I'm ready to take ten cities. Spurgeon says, there is no proportion between the poor service and the rich reward. A pound is rewarded a city. The rewards of the millennium will evidently be all of grace because they are so incomparably beyond anything which the servant's earnings could have deserved. Their Lord was not bound to pay them anything. They were his bondservants. But what he gave them was of his overflowing grace. At the end of it all, remember Jesus even taught this. What should we say after we've done everything? 
We are but unprofitable servants. And meanwhile, what is the response of the Lord to these servants? He gives them exceeding reward. The parable of the talents, Matthew ends there with, enter the, into the joy of your master. You know, faithful servants enter into their master's joy. And certainly, God's joy is too immense for us to describe in totality, but certainly at least part of His joy is seen in His working within the universe. Faithful servants will enjoy the bounty of their master and they'll be given tasks and responsibilities in eternity. This picture that heaven is a place where we just all sit around in a circle and sing Kumbaya is not accurate. The Bible describes a very vibrant new heavens and new earth with responsibilities given and tasks to be done. Many have imagined things like, you know, watching over solar systems or galaxies, all sorts of things of the nature. But the point is this, is that there's going to be things to be done and we're going to be employed in the Lord's service in eternity. And He will be worshipped and adored for it all. There really is nothing better than being rewarded with more of God. That's what we want. Recently, my wife and I have, um, with our kids, have done rewards on the basis of date nights. So the reward is you get more time with mom or dad. That's the reward. So really, I'm the one that gets rewarded. It's really, it's really tricky. But anyway, what's so great about it is this, is that it rewards with relationship. And isn't it wonderful? There is nothing greater, there is nothing more fulfilling than to know our God deeper and to be employed by Him. The Lord's work is not a drudgery, it's a joy. That's why we can enter into His joy. He joyfully accomplishes what He does. There's no better employment than being in the Lord's field. You can't have a better boss than Jesus. (laughs) And certainly the benefits are out of this world. Third instruction. Look to the end of the wait. Look to the end of the wait. What, what allows you to persevere in the midst of the trial? It's looking forward, even if we don't know when it is, to what it is. And in this case, it's the certainty of the king's return. That's what gives energy for each new day, is knowing that our king is coming back. And that there's no one that stands in his way. That his kingship isn't up for grabs. That the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, for all the disappointments which we've encountered in this life, you can be sure of this. If you are in Christ, the return of our King will fill you with joy inexpressible. There will be no disappointment when we see Him arrayed in His glory, when we see Him as He is, and we're made like Him. There won't be an ounce of disappointment on that day. The certainty of our King's return. I want to close, though, with this thought, and that is of the futility of rebellion. One of the distinctives of Luke's account, this parable of the pounds or the parable of the minas, in contrast with the parable of the talents in Matthew, is that there's this reference and mention to these citizens who take advantage of the absence of the ruler to rebel against him. You don't have a listing or description of these individuals in the parable of the talents. There are citizens, we're described here, who hate the king, and they send ambassadors after him, pleading that and willing that he not rule over them. When you read that and you contemplate Jesus' own ministry in the coming days that he's about to come into in Jerusalem, it sounds just like the rejection Jesus got. It's exactly the things that they were saying when he was delivered over and murdered there on the cross. We read in John 19, verse 15, So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. And then when Pilate announces that he's washing his hands of this individual, that he's innocent regarding this man's blood, we hear the people crying out, 
His blood shall be on us and on our children. They rebel against the true king. But the rebellion is futile. The Lord will return and He's going to bring with Him perfect justice. There are three people pictured here in this parable. You have the faithful servants. You have a servant who's unfaithful, unprofitable. And then you have this group of citizenry who hate the king. But really, those three people reduce to two eternal destinies. The faithful servants and then the rest. The rest are either outward and outspoken in their revolts or their worthless association shows them to be not people of faith who know him, their king at all. So the king first dealt with his worthless servant. He takes away the mina. He gives it to the one who has ten. And when he does this, the onlookers that are there are astonished. And they cry out, Lord, he has ten minas. You know, it sounds like little kids, doesn't it? I wonder how often we sound like little kids. He's already got ten. Why are you giving it to him? This is like, you know, the reverse of Robin Hood. We take from the poor and give to the rich. Why is he doing this? They're crying out, this is unfair. That's what's implied in this exclamation. Well, this man has now been given ten cities. Do with a mina. He's given ten cities. Now you're giving him his mina too? I'll tell you what I'll do with the mina. He'll be faithful with it. Because his past performance is the best indicator presently of what he's going to do in the future with it as well. He'll faithfully invest it and he'll return a profit. I mean, this is a foundational principle for investments, isn't it? I mean, when a person attempts to make an investment, you do so in a company that you think will turn a profit. If I told you from the outset that if you give money to this company, you will lose your money, are you going to give your money there? No. If you had the choice to invest your resources in, A, a company that makes 0% profit, B, a company that makes 500% profit, or C, a company that makes 1,000% profit, where would you put the money? So, they're crying out here that this is unfair. But this has nothing to do with being unfair. It's all the master's stuff. He's giving it to his faithful servant. Now, if it's fairness that these guys want, he's ready to give them that. And so now, this Lord, this nobleman, looks at these citizens who've rebelled against him, and he says, gather them before me, and they're going to be slain right here in my presence. He kills them. This is a very sobering reminder of the fact that there is a final judgment coming. Those persisting in their revolt and in their rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will see a terrifying punishment. Hell is real. But a sobering reminder that your response to Jesus is quite literally a matter of life and death. Eternal life or eternal death. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So we're going to wait. But the present state of things will one day be transformed and all enemies will one day be put in subjection to Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. And so, if you're one of these resolute rebels... Should you maintain your resistance, your revolt, your rebellion against Jesus, understand that you will be unable to stand in that coming day. Now, that day might for you happen upon His glorious return, or it might happen upon the day you die. But the sword of judgment is coming, and you can't stand before Him. But you can find mercy and grace. If instead of rebelling and running away from Him, you'll repent and run to Him. Here's the great news. Jesus is not Archelaus. Jesus is not Archelaus. This is so incredible about this parable. Jesus makes use of a historical event in the sense the nobleman is Jesus, but Jesus is nothing like Archelaus. He's not an oppressive, austere, severe dictator. 
He's a loving, kind, seeking Savior. He is of the noblest birth. And in His first coming, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling all righteousness. And He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Then He rose again from the dead and He ascended to heaven where He sits at God the Father's right hand interceding for us. So while it's still called the day, and while we still sit in between the first and second comings of Jesus, there is time for you, dear friend, to repent. There's time for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Because the same King who will come with severe judgment is the same King who laid down His life that you wouldn't have to see that judgment. He allowed the judgment to fall on Him. And for those who are waiting for our King's return, we have the blessed news and knowledge to know that the best is yet to come. Jesus is returning. He's coming again. And when the blessed end of history as we know it comes, those saved by grace and humbly serving Jesus in the time of waiting will not be disappointed. Romans 8.18 For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your marvelous Word. Jesus, thank You for making details of coming events clear to us through the use of parables and stories. Lord, we know that we don't know all the details. We certainly don't know when You are coming back, but we do know that You are coming back. And we look forward to that day. We cry out from our souls and from our lips, Come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to Your return. We long for it. We long for the new heavens and new earth. But in our longing, may we not be found wasting the time that You have given us to wait. May our waiting be filled with faithful service. May You be glorified and may it benefit our fellow man, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.